Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have Jeremy Roll with me. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. And I, I put an emphasis on passive because that's what I really wanted to be. Of course, I became also active. Uh, he's currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than a billion dollar worth of real estate and business assets. So I don't think, Jeremy, I can do justice to your bio. Would you like to add? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I hope this is helpful for your, your listeners. Um, so uh, I'll try to keep it short. So I'm from <laughs> Montreal, Canada. Originally, uh, I moved to the US in 98, did an MBA over at the Wharton School, which is University of Pennsylvania nice. in Philadelphia. And then I moved, out, yeah, I moved out to LA in 2000. So I've been in LA for about two decades now. Nice. Um, and essentially, I'm a passive cash flow investor full time now. I started investing passively in syndications in 2002. And I eventually rotated all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow. Um, and in 2007, I got out of the corporate world from the cash flow. And I've been a full time passive cash flow investor since 2007. Um, I also uh, co founded in 2007, actually, uh, a nonprofit called For Investors by Investors. Most of our chapters are here in Southern California, but essentially it's the, the answer to the question of like, how can you go to a public real estate meeting without having a sales pitch? So yeah, that's right. why I started it. And in fact, we <laughs> actually lose money off of it every year. We're just trying to break even on the cost of the venue and unite investors oh, yeah. so we can learn from each other. We have panelists and speaker format. If you're, we have a few chapters actually outside of California as well. So if you want to, if anybody wants to learn more about those, they can go on to um, either forinvestorsbyinvestors.com or just type in FIBI in the search box. Um, I also have my own investor group um, that I've been managing since 2002 as well. And uh, basically it's for people who are looking uh, for similar opportunities to what I invest in, just passive cash flow stabilized. And essentially the reason why I got into all this was just for um, the, the ability to have more predictability with my retirement account. After the dot-com crash back in 2001, I really was just fed up with the stock market and a lack of predictability. Right. And so that's why I target kind of lower risk passive cash flow and that's how I started. Um, so I'll end there. Hopefully that wasn't too long. No, that was good. So I'm glad that you mentioned about the dot-com bubble crash because that's when I migrated to United States right in, uh, you know, in Jan 2001 and I saw everything crumbling around me uh, and I was in IT, right? And I'm still in IT uh, somewhat. So that was the most affected industry because I moved to Bay Area and everything was closing down. So yes, we saw that again in 2009 and we are just seeing that again in 2020, right? So what, what do you see like from stock market perspective? Because whenever I'm talking to my friends about investing in real estate passively or actively, they always want to compare it to stock market. They, they always mention that, oh, I'm getting 10, 20% year over year. You know, why would I invest in real estate or some other assets? <laughs> yeah, so that's a great question. And, and, you know, so we're recording this in April of 2020, and it's a very right. time right now because the stock market, I'm not a stock market expert. In fact, I've not owned stocks since 2007, just in full, really? yeah, wow. in full disclosure. Like, I'm all in on cash flow. So, 
but you know, um, the stock market's now kind of taken a leg down very quickly, much more quickly than it normally would in a, in a right. recession. It's kind of come back up, but it's right now as we're talking, it's back at a PE ratio that is actually above the highest PE ratio before we had the implosion in 2008. Right. So that's really crazy to me. So that what that tells me is that I'm expecting another leg down. Nobody knows for yes. sure. Yes. I'm expecting it to actually be quite substantial still. And um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I would say that if you're comparing the stock market to real estate, there's pros and cons to each. There's yeah. absolute pros to each and cons to each. I think liquidity is a huge plus on that's the stock market the huge, side. Yep. And if you take a look at a chart of what's happened in the stock market, it's taken a huge, unusually large run up in this last cycle. So there is definitely a, um, so on the one hand, there's an argument to be made that the stock market was, uh, you know, a very good place to be in the past decade. On the other hand, if you look back at that and look at how the stock market works in the very long term, that would actually imply that the stock market may not be as good for the next decade, right? right. That's go true. Charts, it, that's just the way it yeah. works for the long term. So you right. got to look at charts. I'm not an expert, but that's something to consider. Real estate is interesting too, because we're, I think we're at the beginning innings here of uh, real estate having a price adjustment. And we're obviously having a lot of challenges in certain asset classes, less challenges than other. Right. But for me, I've been using real estate as a cash flow asset, hard asset. And the thing about real estate is that, and I don't want, don't want to be a labor of this, but there's a thousand different ways to invest, literally, probably yes. more than that. Yes. That's and so when, when someone's comparing the stock market to real estate, what they have to really do is compare the type of real estate investing they want to do and the type of stock market investing they want to do because there's a lot of different ways to invest in the stock market too. Right. And so it's a tough question to answer because you have to compare <laughs> it to like the type of real estate investing, you know, cause you can do ground up development and maybe get higher yeah. returns in the stock market. You could destabilize cash flow and maybe get similar. And in fact, yeah. still better in my opinion than the long run average yes. in the stock market, but there's a lack of liquidity and there's other disadvantages and there's a lack of control if you're passive. So there's all different types of things we can talk about. It's kind of a little more complicated than that, but there's definitely pros and cons to each. No, that, that was great though. Um, so you and I both uh, started as passive investors and you do, uh, and I do both passive and active. And I'm always comparing, you know, uh, deals by deals, syndicator by syndicator. So I want to focus on, uh, you know, during this podcast, I want to focus on how do you vet your syndicators or, you know, when you are investing passively, what are like top 10 things you look at? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been on uh, other podcasts discussing this topic and what becomes really challenging is that like we could talk about this for five hours, like literally <laughs> you want to get down to the bottom detail. It's true. Right, right. So I like to keep it more high level. So first of all, keep in mind that the due diligence we're going to discuss today is for what I do as a passive cash flow investor targeting stabilized opportunities. It'll be different if you're looking at a development or maybe a major right. value of deal, right. right? That's number right. one. So just to talk high level to start. You know, as a passive investor, what I've learned over the past 18 years, in my opinion anyway, is that the person I'm making the bet on is even more important than the actual property. That's just my opinion. Some people may disagree. I consider the property a very close second. It's very important. That's a, that's a great point, though. That's yeah. so, so important that you got to vet the sponsor first, right? You got to see the experience and how long they have been in business. Yeah, we were talking about this just before the podcast started, right. so it's kind of relevant now. So, so, um, so what I try to do is I'm trying to find people who are conservative to match my profile, what I'm looking for in my personality, who are looking to under-promise and over-deliver to basically build long-term relationships and hopefully have those investors be repeat investors for many years or many decades. Right. What I'm trying to avoid is someone who's got a lot of good marketing, 
who's making numbers look really good and maybe will overpromise and possibly could underdeliver, yeah. but doesn't care because they have a really good marketing machine, for example, and they'll just move on to the next investor. Right. And, so, and you know, there are definitely both of those sets of people out there. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the easiest way I can describe it. So if you're new to this type of investing, I cannot, or even if you're not new, I cannot stress enough the importance of trying to understand who you're making a bet on before you actually make a bet on them. Now, there's a lot of ways I go about doing that. And I'd say one of the most important things I do is what I call reading between the lines. And it's a little bit difficult to describe, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So I will take, I do a combination of things to try to do this. So, um, you know, if you, um, sometimes I'll ask questions to the sponsor, not for the purpose of actually getting the answer, but for the purpose of seeing how they answer it. So for uh. example, um, if, um, let's say that, um, a, uh, you know, let's say that there's an assumption for years one through five in an apartment building opportunity that rents are going to go up 5% per year, but expense inflation is only going up 2% per year, right. right? It's already going to fall outside of my criteria. I'm probably not going to want to move forward because I'm not yes. looking for that type of deal. But even if I was, I'm going to Oops. for, you know, five years when you're actually, you know, you've got 2% expense inflation for five years. And the question is, then the answer could be either, um, you know, there's been rent growth of 5% for the last three years in this area. And we just, we see it continuing, the population's booming and et cetera, et cetera. They may not be wrong and they may be perfectly right, but that doesn't match with what I'm looking for because what I'd rather see is someone who is putting in 3% and I'm having to ask them the question, why didn't you use 5%, you know, because there's previously 5% and their answer could be, well, we think we're going to get 5% rent growth for the next few years based on how the population has been decreasing, but we want to set really conservative projections for investors so that we can, you know, under promise to make sure we're going to hit our targets, right? right. And so I kind of knew the answer probably before I asked it, but I want, I want to ask that question just to understand better. Right. Again, make sure that my thought process was correct because if my assumptions are correct and they're validated, then I know who I'm dealing with, right? Because you're going to make an assumption before you validate it. You have that's, to make that's, a, that's another, yeah, that's yeah. Value, value bomb right there. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's really important. Other things you could do is when you're reading the actual business plan or the overview, you might see sometimes that they use verbiage about, you know, you may read the sentence, we assume 3% rent growth, but we actually think we may overperform because there's been 5% rent growth in years, but we want to be conservative, right? Just that reading mm -hmm. that one sentence will give you an idea of who you're dealing with to an extent. Right. Okay. So, okay. so that's one, that's one thing. You obviously want to also look at all the numbers and the assumptions that kind of read between the lines of the assumptions. And another thing you could do, which is quite interesting to understand how detailed somebody is, is I remember once I was looking at a self-storage deal, we we're just talking about self-storage before the podcast. And um, this operator uh, used what seems like it's reasonable is they said, okay, the average expense growth will be 3% per year right? Or 2% or whatever right. the number was. And they, if you went a line by line on the pro forma, the projections, you would see they just applied 3% per year all the way through for 10 years. Seems reasonable. But then the right. problem is that I looked at the fact that there was a health insurance that they were paying for a couple of the, um, the employees. Uh -huh. And I said to them, well, health insurance plans aren't increasing by 3% per year. They're increasing by like 8 to 10%. Oh, yeah, year, yeah. Right? <laughs> I can and attest to that. Because, right. you know, you and I are self-employed, so yeah. I've seen that they, they went up sometimes 20, 25 percent. Yes, I can attest to that, too, very, very, especially here in California. So, exactly. so, 
you know, so, so my response was, well, this doesn't seem right because, you know, so what, what that tells me is that the operator, even though it would seem okay to just take 3% and put it across everything, it tells me they may not be that detailed because they didn't go line by line and actually adjust things, right? So uh, you're trying to read between the lines and try to catch things that may not be obvious that tells you who you're dealing with. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. I'm gonna give you another example because it's such an important point. I'm sorry, I'm going on about this. No, this is, this is the most important one as you and I discuss even before the podcast, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I tell people like, look, one of the things I, I have as a requirement before I invest with somebody is to meet them in person at least once because I wanna do a gut check on and my, you know, my read on the person. Is this person I wanna make a bet on? Oh, okay. okay. Okay, that's beyond, that's not tangible, but that's important. But what I also tell people is that one of my favorite things to do is the site visit is so important. Like I'd actually sooner have them do a site visit for me than go, if I can only meet them in one place one time, I would choose to do a site visit instead of an office visit. And the reason is because when I do a site visit, I'll ask them to pick me up and then they'll typically take me to the property, show me the property, drop me off. Right. right? But what's so interesting is that there's two different types of site visits you can have. The first site visit, and let me just take a retail strip center, for example, because it's much easier to picture all this. So if I'm going to invest in a retail strip center, uh, which I'm not doing right now, but if I was, then, um, you know, if someone's driving me to the property, one, one way they can do it is they can actually drive you directly to the property, walk you through the property, right. maybe walk you through and, you know, look at all the tenants inside, show you like, you know, walk around, show you like the way the property's laid out and discuss it a little bit and then go back and, you know, have lunch and go back. Right. Yep. And frankly, that, that's not a bad thing. You're going to get a lot mm -hmm. of information. The okay. other thing they could do, though, instead, is they could take you purposely on a specific route that they already thought about, where they're actually passing by as you're driving to the property. Let's say there was a Kroger in the property. Right, right. Yeah. They're going to pass by and say, okay, this is a competitive center of ours. We looked into it. This one has an Albertsons. The traffic's doing X dollars per square foot. And this one at the, at the anchor tenant, ours are doing Y dollars per square foot. We're in really good shape. It's not taking away or cannibalizing any sales. Then they'll go drive by the next one and say, this one has, you know, another competitive restaurant, but they've both been doing well, you know, and you can see the tenant mix of this one isn't quite as good as the one we're looking at. And they'll actually drive you through, give you an entire lay of the land, bring you to the property, do the exact same type of tour at the property. And then maybe over lunch, they'll give you even more details about the actual area, et cetera. Right. And stuff that they've to me, this is two completely different uh, right. Out outcomes. Right. And it's so important because again, in this first one, it might be okay. But in the second one, you're getting a sense that this person really did their homework. Yes. They really researched everything. Right. So it's possible the first person did their homework too, and maybe knows everything. But in the second one, you're seeing someone who's proactive, who's thinking about all these things, who actually wants to communicate with investors and give them more information, right. et cetera. It's, so, yeah. So I think it's not just fluff or marketing, you know, actually right. the person is prepared even for your visit. Right? Yes, yes. So this is like a lot of reading between the lines that I think is really okay. essential that I think a lot of people um, don't necessarily <clears throat> even consider doing, right? And the other thing too is that um, I always do background checks on all the managing members of the uh, of the uh, sponsor entity that I'm. Wow, that that's very important. I want to highlight that. <laughs> yeah, that's something that most investors don't do based on me talking to a lot of investors of the right. unfortunately. It's definitely saved me a few times in 18 years, like no doubt. And um, it's a very important step that I would strongly recommend that unfortunately, I just don't see that many people doing. No. So how do you run the background check? Do you ask them for your, uh, their social security number or do you just do like Newber or 
uh, verified.com, beenverified.com and just use their uh, name or phone number? Right. So actually, that's a great question because, again, I do the same thing for Reading Between the and I test them, actually. So <laughs> what I do is I use a service called TLO, like Tom yep. Larry Office. Yep. That's actually owned by TransUnion. It's very hard to Got subscribe it. to. You have to have a real office with a certain type of lock. They come and inspect everything. It's, it's very specific. But in any event, um, it's a really very detailed. In fact, I know a police lieutenant we're friends with here. Um, we go to the same school. And, um, you know, he uses TLO when he arrests somebody. The oh, first wow. database they okay. use. Yes, which is crazy. Anyway, so what I'll do is I'll say, look, I'm going to run a background check on you. Um, two things. One, you have to send me your name, date of birth, and home address. Um, <laughs> now, I don't need any of that, especially if they've got an unusual name. I could use their phone number. I could use their right. email. But I test them and see if they, they're willing to give that to me or they're trying to hide something. Okay. I don't ask for their social because I think that's kind of over the line. I could see right. that. But I don't need it. So. You know, and yeah, like, yeah, you actually don't need it. Just this is just right. you know, I was throwing it out there because just maybe I want to see their reaction. <laughs> right, right. And then the second thing that I ask for, which is probably even more important, is I say, look, is there anything I should know before I run this background check? Ah. And, and the reason is, and I just dealt with this yesterday. You know, there's a lot of things that come up in background checks that are actually reasonable and explainable. I, in right, fact, right. I would tell you eight or nine times out of 10 that I find something that I ask about, I think it's actually a reasonable explanation. So for example, just yesterday I ran a background check on somebody. There were three foreclosures that they had in 2009, 10, 11 for single family homes. Wow. First of all, already you can kind of start to add up probably what happened, but there was even right. a better story behind it. That like, you know, it's easy to make an assumption. Oh, they invested in it. They maybe had too much leverage. They had a problem at the time. They mm -hmm. bought it at the wrong time. But there was an even more important, better story that actually was an even better explanation as to what happened and how they try to hold on to it in the bank. You know, so my point, though, is that they uh, chose to tell me that in advance. They could have just hoped that I didn't see it. Right. Right. And, and so giving them the opportunity to tell you up front is very important because it's testing them again and seeing if they're trying to hide something. I had an investor call me. Uh, about a month ago and say, Hey, I just ran a background check. Um, this person, I asked them in advance, they didn't tell me anything. And I found that they had a bankruptcy in the 2000s. And they said, should I, should I invest with them? And I said, look, I, I mean, it's your, it's your decision. But, you know, I think they were probably hoping it's been more than seven years, maybe you weren't going to find it. Right? Because that's not <laughs> exactly like a minor event in someone's life. Oh, so yeah. Not something they will forget to tell you. I think. Yeah. Chapter 11, PK? No. <laughs> you right. won't forget so, that. So because they test them and because they didn't say anything, they actually decided not to invest because it's like uh, there's a lot of people you can make bets on. It's not worth taking the risk. Right. So right. again, I think both of those steps are important tests. And, you know, just to see what happens and just, again, trying to read between the lines of who you're making the bet on. Oh, that, that, that's amazing. You know, whatever, what all the topics or points you have mentioned, I, I, I even didn't think of any of those. <laughs> Other than the background check, yes, but yeah, uh, like the drive-by site visit, yeah, that's amazing. So what's the next, then next uh, would be, oh, yeah. you would so, look at the deal itself right, so or the property? Like yeah, so that's kind of like the intangibles, I call them, right? The reading between, the tangibles are the stuff that I think, um, is a little easier because you know you could set your own metrics so you can look at you know rent rent increase assumptions for inflation expense increase assumptions yeah, every every yeah. type of property is going to be different you know an apartment yep. might be different than a self-storage yep. and even then the neighborhood the market yeah yes. lots yeah, of so variables yeah so i'm just keeping it high level but yeah. you're going to want to look at expense ratios to see how conserved they've been as far as their assumptions on how much expenses there are how much reserves there are how much padding there is you're absolutely going to want to look at 
the uh, reversionary cap rate, which is the cap rate they're assuming to sell the property out down the line. Did they, did they increase the cap rate over time? Did they not? You know, that helps them to make the numbers look better or worse, depending on how conservative they're being. That's a very important point to look at. Uh, some of the vacancy assumptions. Uh, one thing I look for personally is that even if I'm investing in a 100% occupied apartment building, as somebody said to me, there, this has been 100%, it's a student housing building. It's the first property across from University of Pennsylvania, and it's been full 100% for the last 20 years. Okay. okay. I would say, I still want to see an 8% vacancy factor. Right. right. Yeah. You never know. Like yeah. this and coronavirus, so, no one expected that. Right? Right. But, but, what's, but what's so important is that if, if they use, let's say if they, they used a 3% vacancy factor, some people might think, okay, that's reasonable. It's been hundred percent occupied. They're giving a little bit of leeway. I want to see someone give a lot of leeway. That's what I'm looking for. Right. right. That's why you've got to look at the numbers, but you've got to create numbers that you're comfortable with depending on the type of investing you're doing and just your own opinion. This is subjective, obviously. I see. Um, so you're going to want to look at all that. You're going to want to see what type of comps the person ran as far as purchase comps, meaning the comparable okay. uh, yeah. sales recently, rent comps, right? And then you're going to want to get a sense also of the general demographics of the area. Has this been a growing area or not? Yeah. What is the average household income? The migration pattern, yeah. And actually, right. even down to the basics of like, I'm buying this, uh, you know, high-end self-storage property, but it's in the middle of a very neighborhood does that make sense right. right even just the concept does the yep. business plan make sense where the property is located so you can get a sense of a lot of this by looking at a lot of data and um what i like to tell people though in the end of the day is that the way i approach who you're making a bet on is with the numbers you have to trust but verify right yeah uh, always <laughs> yeah. because you're, you're not going to understand how to run the asset as well as this person you want to understand how to do this mm -hmm. as well as this person yeah. that's their business that's their core focus but you want to verify they've actually done a good amount of due diligence and so where yeah. that comes into play is you want to make sure they ran their comps you want to make sure they ran their rent comps or sale comps you want to make sure they ran their demographics you have to verify what they did and decide were they comprehensive enough and do you agree with you know it's a combination of were they comprehensive enough are they comprehensive enough to want to make a bet on as well as now do you actually agree in relation to the actual business plan of where the property is located um so you know high level there's both sides. There's the intangibles, there's the tangibles. And again, each property will be different. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of other things we can look at, you know, right. taxes going for, there's a ton of stuff, but uh, I was just trying to keep it high level. So uh, uh, let me ask you a question right there about the data. Are there, uh, or can you share some of your favorite, favorite tools or websites you use to uh, gather all this data? Uh, means I look at citydata.com for yes. demographics, salary, crime rate, et cetera, yes. but do you use anything else? Yeah, that's a very common one. I'd say that's one of the most common ones. What I would say is here's what I actually do, which is a little bit different than that approach. I ask the sponsor to give me all the data that they actually put together. And oh, okay. Okay, that's what I do because I'm trying to verify what they've done. And what I'll all do right. is I may then cross-reference it. So I'll give you an example of the demographic data. It's a very easy example. They'll give me a data set they got. And it will be from some source. It could be from city data. It could be from somewhere. Right. CoStar or something. Yeah. Very often it's going to be from CoStar or more of a professional yeah. source. Because yeah. it's expensive, you know, to get access to it. You and I are not going to have access. Nope. <laughs> I will take that data because every data set's different, you know. Yes. Population growth assumptions. That's based off of someone's work somewhere, right? So right. I will take that data. I will then pull up. This is going to sound very rudimentary, but I'll pull up Wikipedia. I'll pull up. Oh, Wikipedia. okay. Okay. They're going to have their own data in there, almost certainly about a city. That, uh -huh. that data often comes from the census, 
but also can come from other data sources. And what's really yes. cool is actually to compare the census projections, for example, to the projections of whatever data set, or you can go to city data, or you can go to other sources that you may uh -huh. find in the Wikipedia page on its own that discuss, because it's not always a census that they're, they're quoting in that. Yeah, right, right. So I like to have that reference on the Wikipedia site to actually pull up multiple other sources that are related to that exact area, as well as city data, because that one's just obvious. So Perfect. I, I want to mention one more thing I forgot <laughs> to mention about the data side. Oh. It's very, very important. I think a lot of, this is something I you know took time for me to learn and it's, it's very important. I think that a lot of people um, high level may look at some of the numbers, but don't consider the loan terms, who the loan is with and what the risks yes. are behind the loan. The, and in fact, we're having this conversation at a great time because right now, if you own the property without a loan, you may be having some challenges, but the biggest challenge of the debt is gone, right? Yes, that's no true. Payment. So if you're in a retail strip center and you're getting 50% of your collections, then you have to pay taxes, maintenance, insurance, everything yes, else, okay. but you're probably just fine, right? Yeah, if yeah, you're yes. Yeah. You're still you're breaking retail, even. <laughs> yeah, if you're in a retail strip center that's 80% loan to value that was purchased last year, that's a CMBS loan, Wow. Big problem, okay? <laughs> yeah. so, and there's everything in between, right? So yes. the loan piece is very important as an investor. What you want to do is set your own parameters for what type of loan that you're actually comfortable with. Are you comfortable with 10 years of interest only or does it have to be maximum? conservative? Are you comfortable with up to 70% loan to value, 80% loan to value, 60% mm. loan to value? It just, whatever it is, you have to come up with your own parameters. And when you look at the loan, you got to make sure because the loan presents a lot of risk to investors and it also presents a lot of reward. But you want right. to make sure that it's falling within your risk profile. And I think one of the big mistakes some investors make is they don't create their own loan parameters to look for. And the problem with that is that sometimes a 75% loan to value will end up increasing returns. But, but I think the investors won't necessarily account for the fact that there's increased risk as a result. Right, right, of course. And the question is, do, do they understand what that risk is well enough and they do want to take that risk to get that extra return or not? It's something they may have not even asked themselves. So just basic is it's not just a question of looking at those numbers. You've got to really dig into the loan, understand what some of the loan risks are. I won't even get into like a loan, a three-year bridge loan that was taken on, on a value-add property two years ago. If the value-add isn't executed until now, now you have a property in one year is probably going to be worth less. Right. Maybe it wasn't what you thought it was. And now you may end up foreclosing a year and a half, but maybe you didn't understand the loan well enough to know when you looked at it, that that was a, that was a risk. Yeah. Right? This, that, this, this loan thing, uh, you know, actually blindsides investors a lot of times. Yes. Uh, and it, yeah. And it's, it's, it's something that an investor shouldn't be blindsided by. I'm not saying right. there aren't a bunch of 1% risks that can result in a bad situation. Right. Right. But you want to understand what you're getting into rather than being surprised what you've got into. And the loan piece is very important to understand. And, and sometimes, or even a lot of time in the grand scheme of things, that 1% return wouldn't make much difference in after end of year five, right? If you are yeah. getting 7% PREF or 8% PREF, if, if the IRR is going to be 17 or 18% at the end, it's not going to matter much. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yes, you want to create your own parameters of where your comfort level is, both in terms of interest only or not, loan to value or not, um, length of the loan. You know, do you want it to be 10 years, five years, three years, whatever, depending on where we are on the cycle. And by the way, I will adjust the cycle. At the beginning right. of the cycle, yeah. I might be okay with a five-year loan. At the end of the cycle, I'm only going to look at a 10-year lock, right? So, 
And by the way, there's also loans that are either fixed rate or floating rate. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I really hope that people out there understand there's a huge difference, <laughs> right? If interest rates go up or down, yes. if you got a floating rate, that can materially affect the ability of the property to perform. So, right. um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get make it too complicated, but it is an important thing to learn so you can actually have an opinion about, you know, there are some deals that I pass on immediately just strictly based on the, in fact, there's a lot of deals just based on the type of loan that's being um, used and that it just doesn't line up with my own risk profile. Wow. Wow. That, that's amazing. Well, this is, this is great. Um, is there anything else we should talk about while, you know, where, of course I know there is a lot, but in a high level. Yeah. I'm trying to think high level of what we didn't cover so far. Um, yeah, you know, I think that the concept of meeting someone in person is very important because it surprised me a number of times where, you know, either I wasn't sure about a deal and I kind of flew out somewhere a little bit hesitant, to be honest. I remember there was one particular trip and then I walked away. I was like, you know what? I'm very comfortable with this. I actually didn't think I was going to be, you know, oh, and, the, okay. and it, the other things happen too. The other way around happened too. And I think the gut check is very important. Uh -huh. The final gut check that is a combination of background check, reading between the lines, data and meeting in person and to me meeting in person even though i realize that's not feasible for a lot of people that are right listening. and right now everyone should be doing zoom meetings okay yeah. and, and, <laughs> and actually zoom meeting is frankly better than nothing if you can't right. right. it's still better than nothing and it should be part of someone's gut check but at the end of the day when you're a passive <laughs> investor i like to tell people like i consider myself trading control for diversification okay mm -hmm. now what i mean by that is i'm a small piece of a bigger deal and right. I'm giving control to somebody else to manage the property. But not only that, but my vote is so small, it's not really consequential as an individual, right? Get in terms it. of percentage ownership. And because of that, I need to be diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators. But I also need to understand who I'm making a bet on when I'm handing my control over to each individual. And so it's really important to get that gut check done at the end by taking all those other steps. That's a very important thing to keep in mind. That's great. That's, that's awesome. So let's take a quick break. Uh, Jeremy, we'll be back after the break. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S.com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. Uh, while we were through halfway through the podcast recording, we lost Jeremy via video, but we still had audio and it was, I thoroughly enjoyed the entire conversation. So um, for the next part of the podcast, I want to ask some uh, questions, which I asked, uh, you know, every guest uh, on the podcast. Uh, the first one is, uh, Jeremy, which uh, real estate or finance or maybe personal development book do you recommend? Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to, cause I'm a cash flow guy and I don't just do real estate. So I'm, I'm going to answer a little bit differently. I think uh, we okay. talked about this before the recording. I think that if you um, are relatively new to this investing and you've never read to these two books together in this order, um, rich dad, poor dad, by Robert <laughs> yeah, Kusaki, but then also cash flow, cash quadrant. flow quadrant. Yes. But I, I think they should be read in that order. Um, they're a right. little repetitive and sometimes people find them a little slow but they can truly be completely life-changing as far as mindset. So yeah. from a cash flow investor's perspective and someone that got out of the corporate world from cash flow, those are my first two uh, recommendations. And I, I second that. So rich debt, poor debt changed my mind, 
but Crashlow Quadrant is what helped me become who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do read both and try yes. reading that order. And you know, even if you find them a little slow, try to get through them. Yes, it's uh, it's, it's worth it. That's awesome. That's that's perfect. So, um, and after this coronavirus impact, I I've been asking each of my guests even before then because I I thought there is a recession coming. But now, you know, maybe coronavirus, this, uh, you know, shutting down the border, shutting down all the states uh, would act as a catalyst to the, for the recession. So what do you see in six months or maybe in a couple of years with the real estate prices, you know, cash flow, et cetera? Yes. So, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people <laughs> and it's, it's been great because I've been trying to make sense of what's going on myself. Me too. Everybody so, here's a conclusion I've come to to make it really simple in case you're struggling with like what's going on, what's going to happen in six months. So if you, if you take the assumption that we're actually starting a recession, okay, let's put aside when is this going to open up, when it's not going to open up. Just we're, right. we're starting a recession, okay? We, we went, took a long cycle. Recession was going to come at some point. Recession starting. What typically happens historically in a recession is that it takes one to two years for prices to adjust in real estate totally. There, it goes very slowly. Uh-huh. And yep. so you got to be very careful right now. I'm planning on sitting on the sidelines for the most part, unless there is some really unique opportunities. And they will come okay. up in the meantime, but you got to be very careful with pricing. You do not want to invest at the wrong price right now. More importantly, I, so, so if you're having str- struggling, like trying to figure out where it's going to be in six, just think of it, okay, we're in a recession. How do I approach a recession? That to me is just the easy way out, right? Okay. And then I'm waiting for three things that will happen in a recession, in any recession. I'm waiting for uh, vacancy discovery. I'm waiting uh-huh. for market rent discovery. And I'm waiting for uh, asset price discovery. Okay. It, that's actually happening very slowly. And I think the virus is making it even more critical to focus on those items right now because I think there's yes. major changes in some asset classes. But until you can get all three of those, it's very dangerous to invest in anything. Um, now, that being said, if somebody approaches me with an opportunity today, what I tell them is, look, because I don't know uh, vacancy discovery and I don't know uh, rent price discovery, you have to give me 2021 or 2022 pricing for me to even think about it. And what I mean by that <laughs> is that it has to be lower pricing because I'm forecasting right. lower pricing because what happens in a recession is that Things adjust, cap rates adjust typically um, upwards, yep. and therefore you have lower pricing. So for me, I'm looking for a major adjustment in pricing to make sense of looking at anything. Um, and and I'm still hesitant at that point. Each asset class is different too. I have a different right, of course. Of, you know how each asset class is going to get through the next this recession, basically. Yep. And and just to remind my listeners that cap rates have been compressing for the last ten years. And as soon as recession hits, usually it goes back up. And as yes. they go back up, the price go down. That's how they are related. Yes. So, yes. And of course, as Jeremy mentioned also, that all the assets class could behave differently. Some asset classes may go down significantly, also depending on the market too, right? Because if the market was heavily reliant on manufacturing or certain aspects of industry, now right now, as of today, April 21st, let's say the market, which is relying heavily reliant on oil and gas, they are going to see significant impact no matter what. Yes. Oil is not going back up 200 bucks a barrel in near future. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. 
Right. So no, th- this was awesome. Um, how can I, my, how can my listeners reach out to you, Jeremy? Absolutely. Yeah. So feel free to reach out to me if you're brand new and you're just curious, like the only way I can help essentially, that's probably the most important thing. So, you know, I've got 18 years of experience. If you're new and considering fast investing, if you want to have questions or brainstorm, I'm happy to help. If you're an operator who has opportunities, I'm happy to connect as well and take a look at them. If you have another investor group that you're managing and you just want to network, that would be great too. Um, and I'm always happy to help also network, of course, with experienced investors, trade notes and stuff, you know, just like we've done here. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. My email is the best way to reach me. Uh, the best way is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at roll investments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. That's the uh, best way to reach me. Thank you again, Jeremy. And I, yeah, I can definitely attest to the fact that Jeremy is really helpful and very responsive. As soon as I emailed him, I got the response right away. And every time I would reply, he would respond again, right? So I appreciate that. Thank you again, Jeremy. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on today. I hope that this was helpful for, uh, for your listeners. Absolutely. Take care. If you are on the fence about investing or have any questions about alternative investments, please reach out to me at alpesh at wealthmatters.com. It's A-L-P-E-S-H at W-E-A-L-T-H-M-A-T-R-S.com. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing!